This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Joseph Brazee, the Associate Director for Global Health at the CDC. We'll be talking about the surveillance of influenza. Welcome, Dr. Brzee. Thanks for having me. Your study is about the progress and gaps estimating the global burden of influenza. Tell us about the different kinds of flu and how they affect people. For instance, regular seasonal flu epidemics and then pandemics. It's a great question. So seasonal flu or epidemic flu and pandemic flu are sort of like two faces of the same thing. And to understand those, think about the viruses. Flu viruses are a family of related viruses. Some of the viruses have evolved over time to cause disease in humans and spread between humans, while others have adapted to infect other animals like ducks or pigs. Human flu viruses cause seasonal flu epidemics. In the U.S., flu epidemics occur in the winter, and we vaccinate against those, those flu viruses that occur in the winter. Influenza pandemics, on the other hand, are caused by non-human human viruses like swine viruses or duck viruses that gain the ability through mutation to infect and cause disease in humans and then spread between humans. Because humans don't have immunity against these non-human viruses, pandemics can spread very quickly and cause a lot of severe disease very quickly. In 2009, which was the last pandemic we had, the virus spread globally after it emerged in Mexico within about a few weeks. So while we experience seasonal epidemics of influenza every single year, pandemics are fortunately pretty uncommon. Only four have happened in the last 100 years or so. Okay, I think you sort of touched on it already, but how big a problem is the flu in the world? So flu is one of the leading causes of respiratory disease and, in fact, death from respiratory disease all over the world. Let me give you some numbers. Five to 15 percent of everybody in the world is infected with flu every year. And so that counts for hundreds of millions of cases of flu each year. We just did a study that CDC led, but it included about 80 countries that looked at how many deaths occur. And so of those hundreds of millions of cases, between 290 and 650,000 deaths occur each and every year from flu, and tens of millions of people are hospitalized. So, so flu is really a huge cause of death, of disease, of hospitalizations, and of just daily disease, staying home from work and, and missing school every year in the, in the world. Okay, so why is it important to have data on the flu? Well, we need data on how important flu is to make wise investments on how to prevent or control it. So this means knowing which groups are most impacted, where it causes the most deaths. The problem is, of course, flu is in many ways an invisible disease or a hidden disease. Most people who get the flu don't get tested. Even if you do go to a doctor and you do get tested, you often show up several days later uh, when you're no longer positive. Because of that, the results of these flu testing, uh, flu becomes a sort of a drastically undercounted or underappreciated disease. So studies that are specifically designed to measure the burden of flu in a community or a country or a region are really critical to understanding the importance of flu and then using those data to understand whether you should invest in a vaccination program or an antiviral program to reduce that burden. Okay, you just said something I've never heard before. If you wait too long and you're tested, you don't show up positive? Yeah, flu causes disease in two ways. And think about it, the, the, it primary infection. You get, a, you get a virus in your nose, uh, it replicates, it divides, and it moves down into your lungs, and you get pneumonia from flu. And that usually happens fairly quickly. You get sick. Sometimes, though, and maybe more often than not, 
uh, flu will cause an infection. You'll have underlying heart disease or underlying lung disease or diabetes or some other disease altogether, and flu will make that worse. And so when you get to the hospital, it's not because of the respiratory infection. It's because you have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease complications or a heart attack or a stroke that was that was instigated by the flu. So when those people show up four to five to seven days after initially getting the flu, you no longer have the virus, but you still have the disease that the virus triggers. And then so how do vaccines and antivirals play into stopping or treating flu? So vaccines remain the single best way to prevent influenza and is found in most places and in most groups to be a cost-effective way to do so. Vaccines reduce influenza cases as well as preventing complications. They also have the added benefit in, in healthy young people of preventing lost days of work or missed school days, which helps economically as well. Antiviral medications, on the other hand, are used for treatment. So once you get sick, you take antiviral medications. They're really effective in reducing the length of illness and reducing complications as well. The big problem with both these things are, unfortunately, both antivirals and influenza vaccines are underused in low- and middle-income countries where they're needed most. And this results in a lot of missed opportunities for prevention. Who collects data on influenza outbreaks, and how do they do it? Well, every country, or almost every country around the world, conducts surveillance for influenza. And using the surveillance data, they test for the viruses, they, they look at people with disease, they can determine when influenza epidemics are occurring. For decades now, really since the 1960s or 50s, the World Health Organization has worked to coordinate all these countries. And so the countries, as they collect data, can share the data with, the, with other countries and with the World Health Organization that allows the world to understand what's happening in country X or Y, but also if there's a signal that may be a new virus emerging, like a pandemic virus or a new outbreak that needs a response. CDC works with WHO to do this. We fund a part of WHO's program to do this. We also support more than 60 national governments around the world to develop the ability to detect and respond to influenza epidemics or pandemics and to share those data with the global community. We're now working with many of the countries we've worked with for the last 15 years on this surveillance capacity to transform that capacity into vaccination programs. So this is maybe slightly different than what we're talking about, but I know that CDC is involved in deciding which seasonal flu is which are going to happen. We do help with that. There's the, we're a World Health Organization collaborating center, and, and what that means, there are four of these centers around the world. We're one of them, uh, and those groups get together. We get together with the other uh, three laboratories in Geneva, usually twice a year, to decide what goes in the vaccines each year. What are some of the major gaps in the collection of good data? I think there are two big ones. Uh, and, and while there are a lot more data now than there were five to ten years ago because of all these initiatives, I think we still have too few data from low-income countries especially. And we have too few data on severe outcomes or complications of flu. And severe outcomes are really important because that's what drives policymakers, decision makers, Ministry of Finance to invest in flu prevention. If you know their hospitalizations, their deaths, that's a much more compelling case to invest money in prevention. And finally, I guess the third thing maybe is a lot of countries, especially middle-income countries who are sort of thinking about whether to invest in flu vaccination or stockpiles of antivirals, need to know about the cost of flu. And we don't have much data in those countries on that. And so is there something being done about these gaps? Fortunately, there's lots being done, actually. Um, CDC, among a bunch of other international partners, 
are continuing to work with countries to build the capacity for estimating the disease burden and for developing these influenza prevention programs. World Health Organization, through an international collaborative program called the Pandemic Influenza Preparedness Framework, are supporting the lowest income countries to collect these data. We're really fortunate in the influenza world, I would say, to have exceedingly good uh, collaborations on influenza prevention and control worldwide, led by colleagues at WHO. But it's a really big job, and it'll take a lot of years and a lot of resources to both build it and maintain it. And, and we're always mindful with the constant threat of a pandemic or the next epidemic. It really is an urgent bit of work. Your article discusses large disparities between different countries. How do high-income countries address flu differently than low- and middle-income countries? Well, first, as you can imagine, high-income countries have long had good data on the burden of flu in those countries, and they've used that to justify an investment in influenza vaccination programs or antiviral treatment programs. Both of those have reduced the burden of influenza in those countries. The problem is, of course, these tools, vaccines and antivirals, are really drastically underused in low- and middle-income countries, both because of the costs of the disease, but also just because there's an historic lack of disease burden data that that's limited the ability of those decision-makers in those countries to make a compelling case for investing in flu prevention. We're finding this changing as more data are collected uh, and countries are becoming more aware of the impact of influenza in their countries, they're starting to develop these policies. The, the best example is the country of Laos in Southeast Asia. A couple of years ago, uh, they initiated an annual influenza vaccination program targeting their high-risk groups in the country, the first low, low-middle-income country to do so. And it was on the heels of about 10 years of working with CDC to both to estimate the disease burden, the cost, the cost-effectiveness of the vaccine, to sort of line up the evidence. Uh, and given that evidence, they invested in vaccination program despite being a low-income country. I think as we start to think about how we engage countries, what data they need to make decisions, Laos is a great example for the roadmap to do that. I guess along the same lines as you were already saying, what what is the bottom line reason for this disparity? I think what we found is clearly that that low-income countries or people living in low-income countries or tropical countries have higher risk of severe influenza disease and death from flu. We know that. It's probably due to a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is they have less ready access to care when they get sick. And so they can have the same illness, but if they show up five days later with pneumonia versus showing up on day two uh, where that pneumonia could have been prevented, uh, they're in worse shape. Another reason is they have fewer vaccines or antivirals to treat them. And so because of that, they have more disease. And finally, uh, among the other myriad of, of causes probably, some of the countries have higher fractions of the population with, with diseases that cause more, that lead to more severe flu disease like HIV infection. And so I think that there's a myriad of these causes that come together in these countries that sometimes they have two or three greater risk of death from flu than, say, the United States. Okay. Your article is about progress as well as gaps. So that's good news. And in the last decade, data collection from low and middle income countries has improved. So how has this happened? And what do these findings reveal? Well, it's happened because 
both countries and international organizations have committed themselves to the work. Uh, we all realize that influenza is a global disease and a global threat, and that reducing the threat to any one country requires all countries to work together. The first step to do that, clearly, is by understanding how much disease is occurring, who's it occurring in, and where is it occurring. We found that, not surprisingly, the burden of influenza is greatest in Africa and South Asia, and among older adults and very young children, the very groups that we target for vaccination in many countries. For many years, strangely enough, up until very recently, flu was thought to be a disease of rich countries. Uh, and now we're finding, as data are collected in, in low-income and middle-income countries, it's just not true. Why would they think it was a disease of rich countries? Because no one ever looked in low-income countries. Low-income countries have, have traditionally had very poor surveillance, had other priorities to worry about. And so uh, we didn't do much with flu research or flu surveillance in those countries up until about 10 or 12 years ago. And as the data building now, we're realizing not only is flu everywhere in the world, but if you're a kid or an adult in a low-income country, your risk of dying of flu is much greater than, say, the United States or France. So I guess that kind of goes back to dis the disparity issue. Exactly. Yeah. Are there plans or recommendations for going forward? And what do you see as the greatest needs? Well, it's clearly not enough to know about flu and its impact each and every year, although that's vital. We need to do something about it. And so in the coming years, CDC and a bunch of other global partners are beginning to invest more and more in growing in influenza vaccination programs. So we, not only do we learn about flu th through surveillance, but actually do something about flu to reduce it. The vaccination programs, we feel strongly, will both reduce the illness globally, but also make us safer from the next pandemic. Because vaccines you, you're going to need to use during a pandemic are the very same vaccines and processes and systems you use during seasonal flu. So you practice every year for seasonal flu, so you're ready to, to produce a vaccine and use vaccine quickly and timely and efficiently during a pandemic. The other need, of course, in all this is more effective vaccines for flu uh, and vaccines that you can give less often that are more amenable to giving a low-income country. These are being worked on really actively right now, and I think we look forward to a future with even better tools to reduce influenza disease and deaths. I've heard that uh, if you get enough seasonal flu vaccines, that eventually you kind of have a basic resistance to flu. Is this true? It's not actually. It's it's a good. It's a myth, though. It's and it's a myth that a lot of people think about and use as an excuse not to get vaccinated every year. I think one of the one of the key features uh, or bugs in flu, so to speak, is that it mutates really fast uh, and continuously. And so what happens is, as the viruses circulate all over the world year-round, they continue to mutate, and they mutate in ways that evade the human immune system. So the virus that we saw this year, we've developed a lot of antibodies to as a population. Those antibodies are now pushing this virus antigenically, their proteins on the surface, uh, to a different place. And so when they show up next year, the year after, they'll look different, and our immune system uh, won't recognize it as well. Well, that's too bad. So tell us about your job at CDC and how you're involved in this research. Well, at CDC, I'm, I'm an epidemiologist and a pediatrician uh, and have worked on flu and other infectious diseases for about 25 years now. Uh, I, I'm really lucky uh, to be here, I think. And we have a great team, dedicated, smart people uh, that are really committed to reducing the threat of flu both here and overseas. 
uh, and proud to work at CDC, frankly. That CDC is sort of this agency that enables work to be done and is fundamentally driven by making sure that we can use our resources and energies to protect the health of the public. For this particular project, I, I've been fortunate to chair a World Health Organization committee for the last five years that has tried to be a mechanism or an engine to catalyze some of this work. Thank you so much, Dr. Brzee. Listeners can read the article, Progress and Remaining Gaps in Estimating the Global Disease Burden of Influenza, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.